All right, I've got 12.30 on the dot, so let's get started. Get you guys in and out on time. Uh, welcome to our second meeting of the year. We're continuing through the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 2 this week. Um, I forgot to mention it last week, but some of you may want to know uh, if there's an additional resource that you can use while we're doing this study. You know, some people like to have Bible study guides or commentaries. There are a lot of good commentaries out there on Exodus. There are a lot of bad commentaries out there on Exodus. Uh, typically, anything that's free and online is usually outdated or public domain and not uh, having the best scholarship available, which is the unfortunate uh, reality. But there are a few lower-cost resources that are really good, and I brought one that I'll mention. I bring, may bring another one next week. But this series, the, uh, the Bible Speaks Today series, and the book is called The Message of Exodus. This is by uh, J.A. Medier. And it's a fantastic series. Each, each one's written, each, it covers through the whole Old Testament, and each one's written by a different person, a different scholar. But this one on Exodus is great. I know the ones on Ezekiel and uh, Jeremiah are excellent as well. But if you're looking for a low cost, something to read along with it, uh, to have open when you read your Bible and you're doing your daily study, I highly recommend any, any one of the ones in this series. I have yet to find a bad one. Uh, it's the message of Exodus, and I'll leave it up here. You can come check it out. I've also got some resources of mine available. Those of you that are new may not know, I do this Bible study, and Ruth Chris hosts it for free. Uh, the way I kind of make a living is by speaking and teaching and writing and producing resources, DVD resources and book resources. So if you're interested, if you like the teaching that's done here and you want some more on different topics, uh, come up and check out some of the DVD stuff I have, as well as grab a card and hop online. I've got hours of free video and free audio on the website as well, and I can do that because people buy the resources. Uh, so, check that out. We're going to get started. We're going to jump back in. Exodus chapter 2. We finished chapter 1 last week. The big thing about Exodus, those of you that have been here know, I'm going to always harp on the big picture. Big thing about Exodus, it's picking up where Genesis left off. It's telling the next phase of the story in the history of the people of God. Genesis 1 told the origin of the people of God in terms of family. At the end of Genesis, they were a family that went down into Egypt where God saved them and through them saved the nations, literally from starvation and famine. Then God prospered and blessed the Israelites, as we saw last week, while they were in captivity for 430 years, and they grew exceedingly numerous. They, they were fruitful and multiplied, used the language hearkening back to Genesis 1, and they filled the land. To the point where Pharaoh uh, became extremely fearful that Israel would either uh, rise up and leave the nation or the land and he would lose his workforce, which is how the NIV translates it, or that they would rise up and overthrow Pharaoh and the Egyptians and actually take over, which is how other translations render that passage as well. So either way, Pharaoh was scared of the threat. They were a demographic threat. In Pharaoh's eyes and so he hatched a plan of subtle uh, population control and when that didn't work at the end of the chapter uh, all-out population control through genocide so the edict that we left at the end of last week that Pharaoh had given was all the male children born to the Israelites to the Hebrews which Hebrew was a derisive term it wasn't just Israel that were Hebrews Hebrews were kind of other people as well it had a connotation of like dirty or a wanderer, or people from those people, just the Hebrews. It's a very uh, negative connotation. 
he orders at the end of it, throw all the boys, all the, the boys born to the Hebrew women into the Nile. That's how we're going to exterminate them. Just throw them into the Nile, let it wash them away, let them drown. It'll be like an offering to the God because the Nile River itself was seen as a God of Egypt. It brought fertility and it brought life and it brought blessing. And so this would be a way of saying, you know, just get rid of the problem. Just flush it away. Just, it's an unwanted nuisance. Let's just flush them away. Uh, how little things have changed in many ways. So we're picking up now in chapter 2. And the story, the narrative is going to get back to what God does in this situation. In this situation where the Hebrew people are being worked to death, they're being oppressed, they're being exploited, they're feared, they're slandered, and they're even a uh, genocidal act of violent population control, killing the newborns has been in, put in place. So this is where we pick up in chapter 2. It says, now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she saw that he was, and this is where NIV, I'm going to veer from the NIV some. As the NIV says, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Literally it says, and she saw that the child was good. Tov, the Hebrew word. It's the same wording in Genesis 1 when God looked and saw that it was good. Every time in creation, God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, day one. It's the same uh, phrase there. It's a Hebrew idiom. It means that to be pleased with or to have a desire for or to see that the thing is, is, is a, it's healthy, it's good, it's, it's as it should be. So it's not like they had a child and they thought, oh, it's a pretty baby, let's keep it. If it were ugly, we'd chunk it in the river. It's not, that's not what's communicating. That's what the NIV can kind of lead to if you read it that way. But it's, she, it's like God saw that it was good. So the, the mother, the parents of this child saw that the child was good. And she hid him for three months. All right? So they have the child. They hide the child for three months. But there's an edict out right now that they're living in. All male children should be killed. So three months is about as long as, as they can keep the child under wraps, probably literally, in terms of being swaddled and, and rocked and all of that stuff. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus, and again, an IB says basket. A basket implies something that's loose and doesn't float and it's woven together. This word is teba, an ark. It's the word ark that's used as the ark that Noah was in and the ark of the covenant that the commandments will be put in later. It's the word ark, it's not the word basket. Uh, so don't think of like a little bag. It's, it's, a, it's a floating chest with a top that you can close that protects something inside. So it, it, it's just the word art. And it's intentionally meant to echo back to the Genesis account. Like Noah, this child is going to be placed in an ark and protected from the uh, waters that would have drowned the rest of the people. Like Noah, this child is going to be delivered by God. God's going to remember his covenant through this child. All of this language that harkens back to Genesis 6 through 9. So she got a papyrus ark for him. She coated it in tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it along the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him, or to literally in Hebrew to know what would happen to him. So here's where the movies all start to depart. They, they <laughs> picture, you know, oh, we have this newborn baby. Put it in a basket. There you go, little fella. Take off. <laughs> Puts it in the water and it floats away and there's a Disney song playing and all this stuff. That's not what happened. She takes the child, 
She's, she's nursed it for, uh, raised it for three months, can't hide it any longer. The village is, this is not like you don't have um, picket fences and walk-in driveway or drive-in carports and things where you can just drive in and close the door and you're on your own. This is village life in a packed, densely populated area of Egypt. Everyone knows what everybody else is up to, so you can't hide things like this very easily. So what do you do? Well, she takes the baby, she puts it in this chest, this ark, this little vessel, with puts a pitch around it so it's waterproof, so it's secure. She takes it and she puts it in among the reeds of the Nile. If you've ever been to a river, like down by the coast, uh, the South Carolina, the Georgia coast, you know, there's just, when you look at the, the water and you see these reeds, and it's just like miles worth of marsh and reeds and all that. It's a very, it's a good, if you want to hide something, that's a great place to do it. So she goes out and she puts it along the bank of the Nile. And the Nile is huge. This is in Goshen, where if you look at a map of Egypt, the Nile fans out like a fan blade, and there's all these tributaries, and it's all green. That's the area that this is taking place in. So it's not like a, just don't think of a river, and there's the bank, and they're just sitting a baby right there. It's not like that. It's hiding it out among the marsh, out among the reeds, so that they can go and take care of the baby, maybe at night. Bring the baby back in, keep it under wraps. Then in the daytime when people are going about and the parents have to go back to slavery, have to go back to work, get the baby out there, station big sister there, watch over to see what happens, to make sure nothing happens, and then the parents go off and do their thing. That's the kind of image it is. It's not like putting a little baby in the basket and sending them down the river. All right? That's not what happened. That's not what happens according to scripture. Miriam is the, his sister Miriam, we'll find out her name later. She's the lookout. She's the big sister, probably between 6 and 12 years old, somewhere in there. And she's watching out for little baby brother. And he also has another brother named Aaron, who's a little bit older. So this may not have been the first time that they've had to hide one of their children. All right? So we have to just keep in mind, put yourself in the setting, in the situation. That's what's going on. They're protecting this child. Once again, the women are the ones acting to preserve and to protect the deliverer of God. We saw it in the last chapter, see it in this chapter as well. So then, verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew sons, she said. Picture Pharaoh's, wife, or Pharaoh's daughter going down, bathing in the Nile. And this was a common thing because the Nile was seen as, as divine. It's kind of like in India, they'll bathe in the Ganges, even though it's a really dirty river uh, because so many people were bathing in it. It's kind of like that with the Nile. It had almost spiritual uh, ramifications as well as just the daily bath. So you get the sense of Pharaoh's daughter, this princess, she's going out, she's in the Nile, she's in the water. She can look and she can see this, the, whatever was not visible from the shore, the little ark there, she could see it from the water. And so she could tell the people on the shore, hey, come here, go get this thing. And they go and they get it and they open the book. So uh, we don't know which daughter this was of Pharaoh. We know Pharaoh's had lots of daughters. It's not like there was one daughter. Again, this is where the movies get it wrong. It's not like you have Pharaoh and he's the, you know, the honey on home from ruling Egypt. There's uh, dinner and then daughter comes in and she's upset because he so won't take her to the prom. It's not like that. This is, he has many daughters. Ancient kings made a lot of babies. That's what they did. They had lots of sex, they had lots of wives, they had lots of daughters. The daughters were part of how they made treaties with other nations, unfortunately. 
So this is not like a tight-knit family. We don't know which daughter this is. We just know it's one of Pharaoh's daughters. So she finds a child and she has compassion on him. She feels sorry, she has compassion is, is the terminology. So again, this, this, there's something in this pagan princess, this pagan queen to be, but yet she has compassion for this helpless child that she sees. There's a godliness to her, there's a quality about her, and she ends up being the instrument through which all of uh, Israel is delivered from Egypt. The irony, it's Pharaoh's own daughter that is Pharaoh's ultimate undoing. So then his sister, now Miriam, she's standing on the shore watching. His sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Which is pretty smart. Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. In other words, she went and got a mom. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I'll pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Moses' mom gets her child back after Caring, doing what, you know, technically she did what Pharaoh said. Every male child, throw him into the Nile. She did that. She placed him in it. She made some protection, but she technically obeyed Pharaoh. Uh, but in a way, and through God's providential ordering, she got her child back, and she was able to actually nurse her own son. All through this, what would seem to be a coincidence. And so, through the actions of Miriam, Moses' mom, Pharaoh's daughter, three women again, uh, being instrumental in God carrying out his plan. So when the child grew older, verse 10, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. In other words, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him officially. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, he wasn't named Moses until then. Uh, or we don't know if he was named Moses until then. He could have had another Hebrew name. He could have been, who knows. But Moses is his Egyptian name. Moses is an Egyptian name. It's in a bunch of Pharaoh's names. There's a Pharaoh named Tutmosis. And it's a, it's a name in Egypt, I think it means like to give birth or to bring forth life or something like that. But it's related to the Hebrew verb Masha. His name was Moshe in Hebrew. Masha means to draw out or to take out or to pull out. So it's a double play on words. It's a, it's a good fine Egyptian name, which means, you know, gives birth or life or whatever. But it also has a Hebrew meaning as well, which is to draw out because he was drawn out from the water. He was saved and raised up for this purpose that we're going to find out. So, <clears throat> verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. That's a very telling sentence. One, 40 years or so passed in that verse. Or 36 years, give or take. If Moses was about three or four when he was weaned and given to Pharaoh's daughter, when he comes, when we next see him, when he's grown up, he's about 40. We know that from the New Testament later when Stephen's telling the story. So, 36 years in the span of one verse. Remember this. We talked about it before in Genesis. Everything in the Bible is not just happening all the time. There are huge spans of time. There was 12 years between when God spoke to Abraham first and the second time he ever talked to him. There's 36 years here that skipped in one verse. So think about that as you're reading scripture. It's not all happening at once. Think about what those 36 years were like growing up in the Pharaoh's court, whether it was in the household, whether he was uh, Pharaoh's daughter was one of his concubine's daughters and he was in an outlying area. Regardless, the text also tells us Moses went out to look at her to see his own people. This idea, again, from the movies that Moses didn't know he was a Hebrew, nonsense. He knew who he was. He was raised by his mom until he was about four. 
Then he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, but he still knew who his relatives were. When he meets up with Aaron later, we're going to see that he knows Aaron. So this idea of he didn't know he was a Hebrew and it was a big scandal and all that stuff, it happens every movie seems to put it that way. And it's just not the case. He knew who he was. He knew he was a Hebrew. He knew his people. And he goes out and he goes out to watch. He goes out to see or to observe them at their hard labor. And it says he saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his own people. Again, it's emphasizing. Moses is identifying with these people. Saw the uh, Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his own people. This is where NIV says, glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Or, that could be how it's translated, a better translation is, he turned and looked this way and that and saw there was no one. So he struck the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. That's literally what the text says. The, the idea is, if you read the NIV, it seems to say he's like looking around. All right, nobody's here. Good, I can go kill this Egyptian and get away with it. And it's kind of a bad thing. If you read the way the Hebrew text reads and other translations render it, it's he looked, he saw somebody beating him, looked around, there's nobody stopping it, nobody intervened, so he hits the Egyptian and he ends up killing him. The text doesn't say he killed him, it says he strikes him. It's the same word that's used for what he saw the Egyptian doing to the Hebrew. He saw an Egyptian striking down the Hebrew, he struck down the Egyptian. So you can read into this his motive. Some people read this as Moses being a noble and, 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 and protector of his people and trying to liberate them. And that's possible. He may have, this may have been his moment. He wanted to go out and rally his people to throw off the bonds of Egyptian tyranny. Or some people say it's him in the heat of the moment. He looked around, he saw nobody, he killed the guy, and then he tries to get away with it. And he was just overcome with passion. So it's a misguided zeal that caused him to commit murder. Take your choice. It's up to you, whatever you think uh, better fits the story. But regardless, he strikes the one who was striking his fellow Hebrew, and he, the guy ends up dying. So he takes him and hides his body in the sand, because there's a lot of sand in Egypt, and that's a good place to hide. <laughs> so, uh, just where we stop. Verse 13, the next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, or the guilty one, why are you striking, it's the same word, why are you striking your fellow Hebrew? So again, he's wanting to intervene. He sees a stronger beating a weaker, and he wants to intervene. Get an idea of the type of character Moses has. The man said, who made you prince and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by the well. So, backing it up, he sees the fight, he's going to break it up. Hey, what are you guys doing? Why are you striking your fellow Hebrew? The implied meaning is the Egyptians are the best. Who made you prince or ruler? I think it ought to be says ruler. Who made you ruler and judge over us? There's some irony there, because in just a few chapters later, God himself is going to make Moses ruler and judge over the Israelites. And Moses will become the ruler and the judge over the Israelites. And they'll go to him to arbitrate cases when they have uh, conflicts among each other. So there's, there's some loaded irony here. It's foreshadowing of what's going to happen. And Moses' response, he's scared because he thinks, you know, this, one, it's illegal to kill somebody, anybody, but particularly an Egyptian, most likely a taskmaster or someone who's over the Hebrews. So uh, he's like, you know, they know. I didn't get away with it. Somebody's told, and it's going to be found out. And sure enough, Pharaoh finds out and says Pharaoh sought to kill him. 
which could have meant, you know, not like Pharaoh snuck up with a knife and tried to stab him, but it could be like Pharaoh put out a, an arrest warrant, put out a, a wanted, you know, this guy is wanted for capital crime, whatever it is. So Moses flees. He leaves and he goes to Midian. Now, if you were with us in Genesis, Midianites are descended through, from Abraham through Abraham's second wife, Keturah. So these are also offspring of Abraham, but they're sort of like distant cousins. They're kind of affiliated with the Ishmaelites, and they, they, were, they were the people who were involved when Joseph was sold into slavery into Egypt in the first place. So they're sort of a nomadic trades, uh, trade route type folks. And if you, this is where a map would help. If your Bible has a map, you can see it. But so this is Egypt down here, and the Nile River comes up, it fans out. So here's the Mediterranean Sea. Here's uh, the Sinai Peninsula. This is Saudi Arabia here, and then Israel, promised land is right here. So Midian is here, all right? Midian's here, the Sinai Peninsula's here, that triangle-shaped thing, and then Egypt's here. Moses flees all the way across the peninsula, all the way over to Midian, modern-day Saudi Arabia is where he ends up. It's important because we're going to find out, we're going to see in the next chapter that Mount Sinai is in Midian. Not in the Sinai Peninsula, not where St. Catherine's Monastery is, where you go and take the tour. It's in Midian, not in Egypt, Midian. That's the one thing that the new Terrible Moses movie did get right, was the location <laughs> of Mount Sinai. But regardless, Midian is far away from Egypt. It's enough to get away to be um, no longer, it's no longer worth it for the Egyptians to hunt Moses down because he's so far away. He's, he's in a foreign land. He's not in Israel. He's not in Egypt. He's a stranger in a strange land. That's where he settles down. And the text says he sat down by a well. Those of you in Gen that were with us in Genesis, you know what happens when a guy is traveling and he stops and sits down by a well. What happens? He gets a wife. So three times it's happened in Genesis. You want a wife? Go to a well. You'll get a wife. Uh, and that's exactly what happens. This is, this is a Torah pattern that we see. Um, where do we start? Verse 16. So he sat down by a well. Verse 16. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. Bam! Told you. A priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Remember when Jacob did this same thing back in Genesis? Watered the, uh, the uh, Laban's flock? And the, there's a fun little word that NIV came to their rescue. The verb is yasha. It's the verb that Yeshua, Jesus, comes from. It means delivered them, saved them. Um, it's, it's, south, it's, it's, it's not just rescued them from, I mean, there's a, there's a deliverance quality to it. Deliverance like biblical, not the movie with the banjos. Um, he delivered them, saved them, came to their rescue. Moses is the deliverer here already, even before his call. And so he watered all their flocks. Verse 18, when the girls returned to Ruel, their father, and Ruel could be his name or it could be a title. Uh, we all know. And it could be father or it could be grandfather because in Hebrew, those are the same words. So there's some leeway here because some people will go, well, later his name is Jethro. So which is it, Jethro or Ruel? Well, it could be either, it could be or. The narrative's loose enough to allow for both. But they returned to Ruel, their father, and he asked them, why do you return so early? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Where is he? Asked his daughters. Why'd you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Literally come invite him to break bread with us. Um, 
So we get this right at this point now. We see that this the Midianites, they said, oh, an Egyptian rescued us. So we get from that that Moses looked like an Egyptian rather than a Hebrew. He, he you know, Egyptians, we talked about, they were well-groomed, they were well-trimmed, they were waxed and shaved and spit-shined. And the Hebrews and the Midianites and others were the rough, rugged pastoralists. So at this point, Moses hasn't fully transformed into a Hebrew. He still has the feel of an Egyptian um, verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. I told you. Want a wife? Go to a well, want her some sheep. <laughs> Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land, or a foreigner in a foreign land. The Hebrew word for alien or foreigner is ger, and the Hebrew word sham means there. So there I've become an alien, Gershom. Here I've become a foreigner. Uh, Moses now is truly a foreigner. He's not at home in Egypt. He's not at home among the Hebrews. He's in a foreign place. And yet he's provided for. He's married. He's given a child. His wife's name is Zipporah. The word Zippur is the word for bird. Zipporah is the feminine. So literally her name means ladybird or birdie. Um, and he's, it, it, it's, he, now the important thing is that he is married. And he is married outside of the covenant people. We saw this in Genesis again. He's married not among the Israelites. He's married a Gentile and a preacher's daughter, Gentile. Those are the worst. Um, he's married. He's, he's the people of God are not an ethnic homogenous unit. They include people from every tribe, nation, people, and language, even in the Old Testament. Even in the Torah, Israel is not just the physical descendants of Abraham. They are the spiritual descendants. They are the people who enter into covenant relationship with the people of God. That defines Israel. We'll see in the Exodus when they come out of Egypt, it says a mixed multitude comes out with them. People, heroes like Caleb, come out with Israel and become part of the people of God. So somewhere along the way throughout the history of, of the Bible and even modern times, this idea that to be ethnically Jewish was part of the people of God and Gentile meant you were second class citizen in God's kingdom. And it's not true and it never was true. That's the point to emphasize. God's people have always been through faith and covenant obedience and covenant union rather than ethnicity, who their parents were. So Moses, he's provided for, he's given a wife, he's given a family, he's in the wilderness. Uh, in modern-day Saudi Arabia, in the mountains, he becomes a shepherd. Um, life just kind of settles down. He was a would-be deliverer. He was going to rise up. He was going to overthrow the Egyptians, perhaps. Uh, the New Testament tells us that that's what he tried to do when you read Stephen's speech in Acts 7 or when you read Hebrews 11. It talks about Moses. But regardless, he was pretty much a failure. So he retires into the wilderness. He's about 40 in this section. And um, it says, verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the same language in Genesis 8 when it says, and God remembered Noah during the midst of his tribulation on the ark. Now, this is Hebrew language, this is Hebrew idiom. D 
Does it mean, oh, God was like, oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> Not at all. In Hebrew language, to zakar, to remember, means to call to mind previous promises and to act on them. It's a way of saying God turned his attention towards getting back to fulfilling the covenant promise. Why did he wait so long? Because in Genesis 15, he had already told Abraham, your offspring are going to be slaves in the land for 400 years. But after that time, I will deliver them and I'll bring them into the promised land. And then the iniquity of the Amorites will be complete. In other words, by the time your people are at their wits end, the iniquity of these people whose land I'm going to bring them into will reach its full measure. And the time will be right for me to deliver you and judge both Egypt and the Canaanites at the same time. God has it all worked out in terms of what he's going to do, when he's going to do it. But that's the perspective of hindsight. We know that because we get to read about Genesis, Genesis 15 and the account with Abraham, and we get to skip 36 years of Moses' life in a single verse. But Moses lived out these years. The Israelites lived out these years. We know from when Genesis 3, 2 ends to when Genesis 3 starts is 40 more years. Because Moses is 80 when God calls him to deliver his people. 80. He's not Christian Bale. He's not Batman. He's not riding in with a sword. He's not Prince of Egypt guy with a nice brown beard. He's 80. All right? Imagine, I'm not going to ask, but if anybody in here is 80 or close to 80, you're the age that God called Moses. Right? That's when life begins in terms of the mission. Everything up until then, 40 years being raised in Egypt, 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness to prepare him for what God's going to have him do for the final 40 years of his life, which the whole rest of the Torah will cover. So from heaven's perspective, or from a biblical perspective, we see God doing all kinds of things, moving pieces. We see the action. We see the covenant unfolding. But from their perspective, the, Egypt, the Israelites were in slavery for 40 years, groaning and crying out. How many Israelites lived and died in slavery during that time? How many of them thought their prayers to God went unanswered? How many of them cried out? 40 years. And then another 40 years while he's in Midian. So 80 years of slavery between this it is encompassed in this chapter. So when you're reading, don't judge, keep in mind what's going on around the scene as well and how God's working. What seems like a rush in the text, it's only a chapter, is in reality a long span of time. Those Israelites would have been tempted to think, and Moses would have been tempted to think, God's forgotten us. He's forgotten his promise. He never made his promise, or we did something to screw up his promise. But regardless, it's been 80 years. We're just going to do our thing and live our own life and hope for the best. They didn't. The text says they cried out to God. They had, no, they had no hope that he would come and deliver them. We don't even know if they knew about the covenant with Abraham because they've been in slavery for longer than America has been a nation. But they cried out for God. And we're going to see the, the, the verse ends, the way it says it, actually, the way the verse ends, uh, verse 25. So God looked upon, or the Hebrews says God saw the Israelites. And then the text in Avi says, and was concerned about them. Literally in Hebrew it says, and God knew. God saw and God knew. There's one other interesting way you could translate that phrase, God knew. If you, if there's two ways in this getting into the Hebrew, but it could also be translated just as validly, God saw and God made himself known to Israel. 
and that way it would be anticipating everything that's going to happen in the next few chapters. In other words, yeah, God saw and he actually decided to do something. Ready to find out what it is? Come back next week. <laughs> 1 02. Kept you for two minutes, so get out of here. Have a great week, everybody.